Did you hear that? I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't I hear that? I don't know, because I barely heard it. It was supposed oh. to be this grand entrance for our guest today, Jake. I'm so excited that Marky is here. I haven't seen him in forever. And he's our first guest of the season. So I thought yes. I wanted some really grand and loud entry music. And then I couldn't hear it, but I'm glad you did. So I think Yeah, no, I heard it. It was <laughs> it was there. The 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 entrance the entrance was grand. Great. I just missed the ceremony, so that's okay. That's all right. You'll be all right. Okay. So Welcome today. We're excited to be back for our new season. And our first guest right out of the gate is Marquis. So Jake, you want to do a quick intro? Yeah, we're really excited for our, our second season here. Excited to welcome Marquis Macon to our uh, to the thing about healthcare. Um, Marquis is the assistant vice president for the Carolinas Physician Alliance, which is a clinically integrated network that's part of Atrium Health, which is a fantastic organization. So I think we're going to learn a lot talking to him today and hearing more about the work that he does there. Um, his background is uh, he's kind of had a, a different road, a different path to healthcare. Um, spent time as an industrial engineer at Baxter, and he's been in healthcare working in a variety of roles, a Lean Six Sigma practitioner. He's worked in ambulatory care, primary care quality, surgical services, business operations. He has a BS in industrial engineering from Clemson, and he has got his MBA at Loyola University in Chicago. He's a fellow of the American College of Healthcare Executives. And you know, when I'm talking with Mark, he, um, he shared with us that he's really passionate about giving back to his community, um, does a lot of work in community service and mentoring other people in the community. And I'm sure that in addition to his impressive background is why he was named one of Charlotte Business Journal's 40 Under 40 in 2020. So super excited to talk to Marquis and hear more about um, what you, uh, you know, your journey in healthcare. And so that's probably a great place to start. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your story and um, what you're working on now that inspires you. Yeah, sure thing. And, and thanks, Pradeep and Jake, for inviting me. Excited to kind of kick off your, your second season here. So um, yeah, it's been quite a while, Pradeep. It's been six years, I believe, since we've seen each other and worked together. So excited to reconnect and, and kind of share my story with your with your audience. So yeah, as Jake mentioned, I um, went to undergrad for industrial engineering. And, you know, growing up, I wasn't really sure exactly what I wanted to do, you know, very quickly realized really good at math and science. So you should probably be an engineer of some sorts. I'm like, all right, let's, let's, <laughs> let's look into that. And so uh, that's how I got my start at Clemson and got some exposure to different types of engineering. And I landed on industrial. I really enjoyed the people um, component of industrial engineering and really interacting with people and processes, um, you know, versus like bridges and, and things of that nature. So uh <laughs> Graduated, got to uh, work at Baxter, kind of in the traditional engineering manufacturing space. Realized that I wasn't too crazy about that. So I was good at it, but I really wanted to, I kind of missed that people component, um, like I mentioned. And so that's how I got into the healthcare setting. And so I uh, came over to Loyola in Chicago and I met Pradeepta there. And that just really continued to pique my interest in uh, healthcare administration. And so um, learning, I was able to learn different parts of uh, the organization. Before I went into healthcare and worked into a hospital, I just thought, oh, it's just a bunch of doctors and nurses walking around, right? I wasn't really familiar with the, the business aspect and all the operations behind that. So I got in there and I was just really pleased and intrigued by it. And so, you know, 
fast forward to 10, 11 years later, here I am still in healthcare and, and have had lots of different uh, experiences all over. And it was it was all intentional, right? So I wanted to just learn as much as I could and really take my skills into different areas of healthcare and, and interact with lots of different people. I love working with uh, physicians. I think that their work is fascinating. Nurses, all the clinical folks. I just love uh, learning about um, the clinical aspects and really kind of utilizing my expertise, um, partner with their expertise to really just make the healthcare system a better place. So that's a little bit about about me outside of work, uh, really into health and wellness. So I'm in the gym a lot. Um, so all about that. Um, I went vegan um, back in November, kind of as a trial, just to see how I would feel or how how hard it would be. And here I am, uh, still at it. So uh, it's been- it's You're vegan and you're still, still here. here. <laughs> still here. Yep. I'm pretty yep. close to vegan, so, you know. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm not, so you guys have me beat. Cheese was, cheese was the hardest part to let go. Well, see, that's why I'm vegetarian. Yeah, yeah, I love cheese. Um, so yeah, a lot of that, um, you know, as Jake also mentioned, love giving back to the community. So been involved with a lot of different nonprofit groups um, across Charlotte uh, and back when I was in Chicago as well. So, you know, big brothers, big sisters, small foundations here that really um, work towards mentoring um, folks of diverse backgrounds, uh, underserved communities. So I'm really passionate about that work and giving back. Shake mentioned I went to Clemson. So of course I love college football. So <laughs> all about tailgating, all about grilling now, all of that. So I missed a lot of that last year due to pandemic, but I'm ready to get back into it this year. (laughs) This guy, Marky, is such a rock star. Like, I'm so glad we're reconnected right now. And so cool. I am also inspired because I don't go to the gym. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're listing off a lot of things. I'm like, yeah, I don't do that. I don't do that. (laughs) I do none of those. And I don't go to the gym. And I eat cheese. And, you know, it's okay. When I grow up, I want to be like Marky. Yeah, exactly. These are life <laughs> These are life goals to aspire to. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing about yourself. So our podcast, The Thing About Healthcare, of course, is our leading topic. So uh, we thought it would be interesting to explore because you do have this very unique background um, around engineering. So the thing about healthcare is it needs to be re-engineered. Clever. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like what you did there. <laughs> so given your background in industrial engineering, what does re-engineering mean to you? And how do you apply that to healthcare? I could just imagine you as an engineer walking through kind of a health system, just seeing all kinds of stuff. So what does that look like from your lens? What does that mean to you? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of, and it's it's crazy. People ask me all the time, how in the world did you go from industrial engineering to healthcare, right? So, so it's the skills are very much transferable, and there's a lot of similarities between kind of that traditional engineering uh, field and healthcare, right? So you know both fields are all about you know producing a product that meets the needs of your consumer, your customer, right? And so kind of the same thought process within the healthcare setting. What are we doing? What are our processes like? Um, and are we meeting the needs of of the patients and the families that we see, right? And so. A lot of opportunity to improve within that space. I learned very quickly, you know, once I got into healthcare, it's a lot of waste, unfortunately, with, you know, wait times and, you know, unnecessary visits um, on occasion, you know, really, really lots of opportunities to kind of help re-engineer that experience that we're giving that consumer. So that's what I think of it as, um, you know, and 
and we're going to have to uh, kind of re-engineer what we know as traditional healthcare, right? So, you know, walking into the ER or going to a doctor's appointment or, you know, going to an inpatient unit, we can't do things the way that we have been um, just because the world is changing, right? We're, we have a, a lot bigger aging population. So a lot of more, a lot more patients that are need, they're going to need that intense care. Just healthcare expenditures are just increasing every year. Um, you know, so those baby boomers age into the Medicare population, you know, how do we do our how do we do our business differently to be able to provide that care and not go out of business right from a financial standpoint? I um, mean, then patients are sicker. So unfortunately, a lot of diabetics, you know, within um, within our populations, a lot of uh, congestive heart failure, a lot of different chronic diseases that can be very expensive and obviously not be good for the patient to have. So um, to me, it's all about really adjusting the way that we do business to meet that end user. How do you see that changing over time? Um, and does the future customer look different? And how do you kind of think about that in your role in a clinically integrated network? Yeah, I mean, we think about that all the time. And we kind of got kind of forced into it with the pandemic, in a sense, if you will, right, because we weren't even able to provide that traditional care that everybody's used to seeing, right, patients, we, I mean, essentially had to stop surgeries, we canceled in-person appointments. And so really thinking about what that looks like. Um, and so we had virtual visit uh, capabilities uh, before the pandemic, it wasn't really utilized, people were kind of unsure about it. Um, and then with the pandemic, we kind of got forced into doing it. So, you know, the first three months uh, of the pandemic, we saw more virtual visits than we had all of in all of 2019. So uh, that kind of forced us to really kind of pivot, you know, as a healthcare system to say, okay, well, we've got these virtual visit capabilities. So how do we maximize that? And how do we make the patients aware? How do we make them comfortable with it? Um, so I think that's not going to go away. I think the virtual visits are here to stay. And now that we're kind of semi post pandemic, um, we're kind of seeing those inpatient in person visits come back. Um, but we don't think it'll ever get back to where it was before. So I think, you know, in the future, I think it's going to be more of the virtual care. Um, we've launched um, what we're calling primary care at home. Um, so even um, during those, you know, primary care visits, so you may not need to come in for that, or there may be a transportation issue, or there may be, um, you know, an issue where you can't get to see that provider. And so bringing that care uh, to the patient where they are, I think we're going to see a lot more um, of that in the future also. We've been talking about ED utilization and maximizing that for years and years and years, right? And so I think that we're going to have to manage those patients before they get into the hospital. So more of that you know, looking at the patients that we've seen in the past, how are they utilizing our care? If they aren't utilizing our care, we need to start to think about being proactive uh, and reaching out to them before they show up, you know, in our ED with all sorts of issues. So um, that's just a little bit about my thoughts on what, what it'll look like in the future. I think that the, the traditional hospital, I think you'll still have, your, you know, your big trauma centers for, you know, car wrecks and things of that nature. But I think we'll see a lot more of the smaller hospitals um, really just taking on those patients that are super complex, that have super um, complex issues. Everybody else, I think they're going to be cared for in a different setting in a different way. So I think one of the things that um, when you talk about re-engineering a process or re just re-engineering in general, I think a lot of people's head immediately goes to Oh, well, that means automation. That means getting rid of, that means downsizing, whatever term you want to use for it. So what are the ways that you go about approaching this type of work from that people perspective? And how do you get particularly clinician buy-in? I know you said earlier, you, you, have, you love working with physicians. So what are the keys? How do we get those physicians on board? 
Yeah, so um, one, I kind of have an advantage because my girlfriend is, uh, she just finished med school, so oh. she'll still be, she's in her residency program, oh, so I kind of okay. got some inside, inside Please don't talk to her about this. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I try my best provider lines with my girlfriend. Don't drive her crazy. <laughs> don't do that, Marky. Just so listen, advice for you. Advice for you. <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at least it works for now. So, <laughs> um, so yeah. So even outside of that, outside of my girlfriend being a physician, um, I think engineers. I've learned engineers and physicians think very similar. So mm. you know, both that strong math, science, uh, statistical kind of background there, and so I've leveraged that, and I think that's been a gift in allowing me to be able to connect with them. Um, so I kind of know they they very much know how to interpret a process. There's, you know, things like clinical protocols and things that they're used to seeing. And so kind of translating that into their terms, uh, they love data, graphs, charts. I love that kind of stuff, too. Um, and so it's putting that sort of information in front of them in a way that they can digest it. So love doing that. Um, you know, um, one of the things that I like to say is in God we trust, all others bring data. So don't just go up to a physician saying, <laughs> you've got to do this. You've got to be able to prove that, you know, with with the data um, that supports that. And it's got to be right, because if you bring the wrong data, you're dead in the water. So, you know, what's in it for them? You've got to you got to think about that, too. Um, what, what is it going to be? Uh, what's in it for the physician or the provider um, by changing the way that they do things uh, and also not losing sight um, of the patient also. So, you know, make it about the patients as well. Um, you know, they're, they're here to care for patients and they want to make sure that they do that. And you mentioned a little bit about automation. I think there are some things that we've started to look at, and I think it's going to continue working with the CIN. And we know that documentation is more and more important. And the doctors, quite frankly, aren't crazy about you know documentation. They just want to see their patients, right? But in this new value-based world, we've got to make sure that, that documentation is there. We've got to make sure that we're coding appropriately. And so where that automation can come into play is, you know, have uh, technology through the uh, electronic medical record to kind of uh, serve up different um, prompts or suggestions to the provider. So based on what's been documented in the past, hey, just a little pop up here to say, hey, you may want to document X, Y, Z, and then have a quick uh, button for them to click to say, okay, yep, sounds good. There you go. And they've satisfied that. So I think there are different ways that we can use automation uh, and not really, you know, remove what we need from the provider, and that is to see their patients. You know, earlier, you talked also about primary care at home and, you know, some of this, uh, the ways you're thinking differently about the experience. And and I think that that's, to me, that's really critical um, when we talk about any of these types of re-engineering efforts is we have to think more broadly about the experience. I mean, in, historically, we've thought about, well, I mean, I guess if we're really pushing the envelope, it's the experience starts when their car hits our parking lot. Uh, but we really have to th completely think differently about that now. And so I wonder if you could talk a little more about your um, your work around primary care at home and kind of how you're how you're looking at the entire experience and how that relates. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, for for HM Health, where, where I am, um, we've had a lot more intense focus around um, community partnerships. And so I think that's going to be very key. It's proven to be um, successful for us. And I think we'll see a lot more of that in the future also. Um, you know, a lot of those patients that may show up in the ED and we haven't seen them in, you know, months or years um, for care, but they're going to church. They're going to the barber shops. They're going to these places um, that we could potentially partner with, right? And so they may not trust what the doctor is saying or what 
that nurse in the in the clinic told me, but I'll, I might trust my barber a little bit more. And so how do we leverage those relationships to kind of deliver better care to diverse populations, right? And so I think that that's something else that um, we've had an intense focus on. You know, everybody doesn't need the exact same type of care, right? Or everybody doesn't receive the message the same way. So how do we tailor and tweak that um, to meet the needs of the patients, right? So, you know, primary care at home, if there are patients that, you know, have issues with transportation or they're, you know, it's it's a whole ordeal to get them, you know, to the doctor for some reason. How can we take our resources out of the traditional hospital setting or out of that clinic to meet the needs of that patient where they are? Um, I've even read studies around um, kind of an ED in a car. Um, so having, um, based, based on uh, obviously not, you know, super chronic issues, but you know, there are things that if you can bring materials from that ED, have it in this this little Prius, I guess, if you will, um, <laughs> go out, treat that patient, come on back. So uh, lots of things of that nature that I think um, we'll see more of in the future. And I think also what is kind of a sensitive subject, but we'll have to start to think about is prioritizing and stratifying the patients that receive care based on, you know, their conditions, right? And so it, it doesn't feel good to say, oh, we need to prioritize these types of patients or this particular population because we want to give care to everybody, right? Um, but, you know, there's some patients that may need more attention than others. And so how do we take all the data elements that we have and really identify, okay, who needs more intervention versus less? How are you understanding your patient population um, from the lens, right, from an equity perspective? So really thinking about eliminating disparities um, by race, ethnicity, you know, there's so many factors that we could talk about. So are you, how are you kind of thinking about that in your work? Yeah, definitely. Um, we leverage that community health um, team that we work with. So the beauty about having um, a clinically integrated network is that we have visibility into not just what happens within our healthcare system in terms of care, but if patients are going to the competitor across the street or if they you know, went out of town and received care, we're able to see all of that information, right? And based on all that robust data, we can look at, you know, obviously demographic information um, and really look at conditions um, and how conditions are improving, um, I will say colon cancer screening is one. So that's a measure that's in several of our value-based contracts. And so we, you know, we monitor that performance regularly. And, you know, we see disparities in the different practices that they are attributed to, the different providers. We've started to look at uh, zip codes. So we know there are certain communities that may have access to care or may have uh, food insecurity, things of that nature. And we've really used that data to identify where can we um, allocate additional resources or maybe we do our business a little bit differently with this population. Um, and so, you know, we've done um, an initiative with our Hispanic male patients. We've seen them having a disproportionate number of those, that demographic getting colon cancer screenings. Um, and so, you know, really what can we do to reach, reach that community in a different way? What is that hesitation about? What do they need? Do they not understand? So, I think it's really leveraging that data and utilizing, you know, the community health teams um, and others that can that can reach that population to eliminate some of those disparities. 
you know, we've been talking about value-based contract forever, it feels like. At least, I mean, the three of us, since we've been in the game of <laughs> healthcare. And, like, forever in our terms. Yes, in our terms, you know, because we're young for our audience who's wondering. Um, so I just wonder, do you feel like this concept of a clinically integrated network, do you think the value-based care models that we're designing, do you feel like they're making a difference? Do you see a difference in your outcomes? And is this the wave that we need to get to? That's a good question. Um, I think that personally with with us within HM, we've seen um, some of that um, performance improve uh, through the CIN. I don't. I wouldn't say that um, the CIN is just the number one answer. If you want to fix your problem, start a CIN. It's got to be done the right way. You've got to have the right leadership. It's really still still kind of fresh, right? So a lot of providers still aren't sure what it means. A lot of providers are still being paid based off a of fee for service model. So you know, we've heard physicians say, "Let me know when. Let me know. I'll pay attention when my comp model changes." Right. <laughs> so um, I think that um, it still remains to be seen as kind of a long term solution to our problems. And then a lot of a lot of the contracts that um, exist currently only have upside risk. Right. So the providers and the, the health systems aren't necessarily at risk or at least not at significant financial risk um, of not performing, right? But that's going to change as, as you stay in these contracts longer. There's going to be that downside risk and those providers, those health systems are going to be more on the hook for their performance. So it'll be interesting to see what that looks like for us in the future. And we've talked a little bit about data and um, the power that data can have. And and I think that's in many respects, well, often what underlies a lot of this move to value is the data that we have. But, you know, we know that, you know, analytics, there's a lot of talk about analytics, but there's also, you know, you can be data rip, data rich and information poor. So what it, what does it look like? How do you turn data into usable information to help drive change? Is there do you, you have some tips for for us from that have been successful in your system? Yeah, um, I think, you know, as I mentioned, the beauty of, you know, having a CIN is we're able to look at all the different claims data, right? But it's so that's a gift, but it can be a curse. You know, you can get into that and, and go down into a rabbit hole and have analysis paralysis and not get anything done, right? Because yeah. you've had so much data. So I think um, it's important to really um, make it really specific. If you're in front of a group of cardiologists, no need to bring them, you know, information or data that's not pertinent to cardiology, right? So, you know, making sure that you're being specific with the data that you're bringing, really getting down to the bottom line, you know, what is it that you want to improve on? And what is it that you're trying to ask the providers or the teams to do, right? Really understanding that data, make sure that it's validated, it's clear, um, you're able to speak to it and really focus. I think it's important to really focus on where, where that opportunity is and focus on that, improve that, and then kind of move on to other aspects. So um, really easy to kind of get lost into different components of the data and not get anywhere. So being really specific, we put together kind of an interactive dashboard um, for our primary care providers to really, for them to kind of go in and look at uh, their performance. So we pulled that claims data, kind of put it put it into a dashboard, interactive dashboard, very user friendly. They're able to go in and see, you know, what is their average medical spend for their patients? What uh, does their performance look like in breast cancer screening compliance? Um, what is their ED visit per thousand rate? And who are those top utilizers within 
uh, within uh, their, the patients that are attributed to them. So really making that data easy to understand, useful, and very specific to uh, that particular group or specialty. And you're doing that, just to clarify, are you doing that at the sort of the practice level or does it even drill down to the individual provider level? Yeah, it drills down even to the provider level. So we have okay. a practice level view, but um, the providers themselves, frontline, are able to go in and see their performance. And the and their care teams have visibility into that as oh. well. So you may have some that don't really, you know, don't really want to go in and take the time to do that. But they've got a super strong nurse that's their right hand that can go in and say, hey, we need to get, you know, patient X in because she's been to the e- she's been to the ED 12 times within the past six months. So we got to we got to figure that out. No, that's really powerful. I think that's I, I mean, I think it's good to hear. I think that there's acceptance of that, too, because I think that that's often been one of the struggles for a lot of organizations I know is kind of resistance to being able to look at the provider level that it's often, well, you know, let's roll it up and we'll look at it at an apartment or a a building or a practice level, whatever it is, because we don't want to call anybody out. But I think, you know, what you've been highlighting here is that you've got to have transparency, you've got to have visibility um, to affect change. So, Oh, yeah. Um, That's been very effective. And I'll think back in my time in surgery, you know, there was a lot of trepidation around sharing each provider's performance. And I'm just thinking like OR utilization, right? How are you utilizing the operating rooms and, and the time that you're given? But we quickly got away from that and started to, we started to blindly share the provider's performance. And then we got comfortable enough to just, hey, let's just show it. Let's just show the performance. And that really creates visibility. And and the, the provider's really held themselves accountable. So I remember I was in one meeting and I shared and there was one provider that was just super underutilized. And he pulled me aside afterwards. He's like, don't worry about it. I'm on top of it. We don't need to meet afterwards. I got it. You know, so. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you again. I'm going to fix it. I'll do it. I'll do it. It'll look different next month. I promise. Please don't have a meeting. <laughs> My father's a physician and that's, I know some of these things. It's like, I don't want any more meetings. And yeah. so if, if improving this metric is going to get me out of a meeting, I'm all over it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I have to ask on that too. I mean, that is a cultural strength. Just having worked in multiple organizations, there are organizations where certainly you can get to that point of transparency and it creates, I'll call it healthy, not competition, but it creates healthy competition, accountability, um, just a sense of, hey, I want to do better. And then there's other organizations where that would be completely, like Jake was saying, counterculture. How could we do that? And how could we possibly call people out like that. So have you worked in kind of different types of cultures? Like how do we start to think about creating a more transparent culture um, as it comes to, because I think that's key to the relationship, right? To be able to really improve healthcare. Yeah, I think that, um, I think it's in, I think you have to kind of start with meeting them where they are. There have been groups that I've worked with that absolutely you will not share the provider's performance in this meeting. Um, And so but I think we eventually kind of got there, right? So I think it's one meeting them where they are. And then you've got to have the right leadership at the table and the right leadership buy-in. So if that lead position says, let's show the data, guess what? We're going to show the data. And I think it's really getting them to understand the importance of that. And a lot of times, you know, that's where we share potentially like, what is the financial impact if we don't? And then that's one way to really get uh, that lead position on board. And many times they kind of fall in line after that, but it's important to have. And sometimes that might not, you might not have the right leader in the right place. So um, that may be something that you have to, you know, revisit about and and make a decision there. But um, that's definitely important, having the right leader there and really 
kind of meeting them where they are. You may not be able to start completely with unblinding the data, getting in front of a group for the first time. You may have to start um, and it be an iteration. So I've seen that too. Note to self. Don't be like, ta-da. Here's <laughs> 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 the data. <laughs> it's probably well, by the way, homework you to suck. do in advance. <laughs> like, Thank you. Word to the wise. Yeah. <laughs> So Marky, as you think about, because I could totally see this, you're so cool. You could totally be like the king of healthcare, like the CEO of the world of healthcare. But as you put on your engineering hat, since that's kind of our theme today, what is your prediction or what what does that re-engineered system look like, let's say 10 to 20 years from now? And how do we get there? What are the key things that we need to be doing now to get there? Well, one, I think behavioral health is a huge uh, need and is going to continue to be a huge need. Um, so I see a lot of systems, hospitals, healthcare organizations, if you don't have that technology or that, that type of service, I think you'll definitely um, want to look into that. I think there'll be much more of a need for that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, community partnerships, I think health systems are going to, are going to have to partner with organizations that they may not have traditionally partnered with in the past. So like churches and barber shops and, you know, other major organizations within the within that city or within that region that um, really care about that community. So I think there's going to be a lot of that. I think hospitals are only going to be utilized for those that are, are really sick and that really need that type of service. Otherwise, you know, there'll be primary care at home. There'll be you know, you'll have your your visit with your primary care doctor. There's, I think urgent care is still going to be around. Um, and I think there'll be, I think there'll continue to be a lot of disruptors to that traditional healthcare um, system. So, you know, CBS, they have health hubs now. And, you know, now we have, um, there are several health hubs within our region that are now doing retinal eye exams for diabetic patients. Mm-hmm. And so, is that a competitor or is that an opportunity for us to partner together and care for these patients together? So I think there'll be uh, a lot of that. I think there'll be also a lot more partnership with the payers. So, um, you know, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Humana, Aetna, you name them. I think there'll be more and more of an opportunity to partner with them because of these value, value-based value models. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a, it would be a win-win for us to provide the best care to, to these patients in a cost-effective way and make sure that we're hitting those quality measures. So that's just a little bit about my prediction. And, and I think we'll, we'll need to continue, you know, risk stratifying our patients. So really identifying who are those high-level, high-touch need patients um, and how do we make sure that that's happening? And then, you know, the easy patient like me, you know, maybe I don't need, you know, the, that high-level care that another patient might need. Yeah. So kind of beyond thinking about risk stratification, what are some of the other really important things that we're going to have to get right as a health system in order to to move into that future that you've outlined? Yeah, I think having the right uh, leaders on the bus is going to be important. I think if you have a leader, you know, at the helm that doesn't quite get it or, you know, it's not on board, uh, it, it's not going to be successful. So I think having the right people in the right seats on the bus is going to be very important. And again, thinking completely outside of the box, right? And so just looking at businesses like Best Buy or businesses like Kodak, identifying where they failed and how they've evolved, um, Apple, Amazon, learning from those, not just 
the other healthcare systems in your area. Well, it raises an interesting point too, because healthcare is a business, right? As business, yeah. we think of competition. And there's a couple of markets, like I think Maryland has a great kind of market for this. But, um, you know, there's spaces out there where truly as a full ecosystem, how do we work mm-hmm. together? And you mentioned like partnerships. I think that becomes really important. And it's really counter to this idea that because healthcare is still fee for service, we're going to compete, we're going to get market share. And you remember Chicago, it's yep. like five academic medical centers, all these major community health systems, there's no movement in the population. So you're literally clawing for a percentage point right, right. of people coming to you. Um, exactly. So it's, a, it's an interesting concept to think about. And I think you framed it as like disruptors versus collaborators, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and we've done a lot of that. I mean, from a pure healthcare collaboration perspective. So through RCIN, we've been able to partner with a lot of different um, systems and, and healthcare providers within the area to provide care for the patients that we share, right? So they're going to the ortho group down the street for their hip surgery, but they're coming back to us for primary care, but we're accountable for that spend, right? So how do we how do we work together on that versus, well, we'll try to steal the patient for, you know, the hip surgery and, you know, you guys do what you want to do. It's, it's really more of a partnership. Um, and that's been proven to be very successful for us. I mean, from an identifying opportunities like referral management. So we've learned, we've kind of peeled back the onion on, you know, referral challenges or, you know, I don't refer to you guys because, you know, it's such a long wait time to see a rheumatologist. And so we've identified areas of opportunity to kind of improve through those collaborative efforts versus just viewing them as a competitor. I work in a very integrated system and the markets I've worked in are pretty consolidated markets. And so I think it's, I just don't have a lot of experience working in these more fragmented environments. And so I think it's all, I mean, to me, that's really interesting. And, and And I really do think that there's a lot of, to me, there's a lot of promise in establishing and having well-run CINs that I I think we, they've been slow to get traction and get moving on it. And so it's an interesting concept. Well, what's a, I I guess, and how long has your CIN been around? Um, So we've been around since 2017. So just a few years and we've certainly grown, you know, we started off with just one or two value contracts and now we're up to eight. So growing, we've got about 340,000 lives that we're responsible for and have attained new members. So lots of other organizations within the community have seen the value and have wanted to partner with us. Um, So it's been good. It's been good. And I think that having this, I think a uh, a misconception is, which we still see a lot of um, mergers and acquisitions yeah. uh, across the country. And so that may be beneficial in some ways. It, it's not the end all be all. You know, there's some groups out there that don't want to be bought out by a big bad health system or, you know, right. still want to retain that independence. That doesn't mean we can't still work with them, right? So we can leverage that CIN or that accountable care organization to where they have that independence still, but we're still working collaboratively to um, provide the best care to the patients that we share. You, you, you mentioned this already and talked about the importance of leadership in achieving kind of what that, what that future state looks like. You've had an incredibly diverse um, leadership experiences over the, the course of your career. What's helped you be successful? What have been those sort of key areas of focus or things that you've found to be 
most beneficial in in your great success? Yeah, um, and thanks for the kind words. I would say number one, first and foremost, is I think my strongest skill is developing relationships with people. Um, I think that that's very important. You've got to be able to. I mean, my boss, <laughs> my boss sometimes says, "I can, I can, I can agree with the brick wall." You know, I can work with the brick wall pretty much, right? <laughs> um, so it's all about that. I think you know, being a likable person, being knowledgeable, being able to foster and build those relationships. And Taylor, your approach to different personalities, that's allowed me to really be successful too. I mean, building upon that, um, establishing that trust. So doing that research on the back end, especially working with, you know, physicians, a lot of times you might get written off because you're just the data guy or you don't really know how this works. And so building that trust, you know, back in surgery, I'd you're talking about this new piece of equipment that you want that's a million dollars. Let me pull in my scrubs and see how this works, right? Let, let's get, I'm going to stand beside you. Let's let's understand how this works and why you need this particular device. And that's been very helpful um, in, in building that trust um, with, the, with the clinical folks. And it shows that you're competent. I do a lot of kind of research on the back end before I'm going into a meeting or going in to talk with someone that I may not be familiar with. Um, and then um, having a presence outside of just the, the direct folks that you work with. So, um, you know, your reputation uh, goes a long way. And so, you know, having, you know, positive relationships with others outside of uh, your direct team across the organization, uh, in the community, uh, various boards, you know, I've established relationships, you know, through boards or community service efforts, and that's proven to be beneficial for me in uh, in my work setting. Um, it all it all comes back around. It's all related. So I think those are, are some of the keys to my success. Would love to hear, maybe you could share something that you've learned from a mentor um, that you still carry with you today, and how has that shaped your leadership? I would say definitely uh, being authentically me. I was encouraged a while back to just be be authentically yourself. You know, you don't need to, not that I ever did that, but you don't need to pretend to that you're just as smart as a doctor to, you know, to be successful working with the doctor, right? Be aware of what you what you know and what you don't know um, and just really be yourself. And that, that takes you a long way. People can see when you're not being genuine, people can see through that. And so, you know, and people are going to make their, you know, assumptions, opinions, regardless. So may as well just be yourself, right? And so that that's definitely taken me a long way. And that, that still sticks with me today. That's great. I nobody wants to see the real me. <laughs> no one's ready for my authentic me at work. I just want to say, but I do encourage it. Okay, well, thank you so much, Marquis, for being here with us today. It was so good to see you. The audience is not in on this cool little video situation we have, <laughs> but it's so good to see you after so long, and you're doing such cool work. So thank you so much for sharing with us kind of your journey and all the cool things that you're learning, and certainly a lot. I took a lot of notes for things that certainly I feel like I can apply to my own practice. So thank you so much for that. Awesome. Crowd loves it. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody loves it. Yes. All go. the people that are. The studio audience. Yes. They're all stashed in my bonus room here where <laughs> I work, my kids play, I work out. They're all in here clapping. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hopefully we'll have you again in the future. Yeah. Let's do it. Oh, Let's good. It's it. on the record. We recorded that. So we'll see you yeah. back at some point. Let's do it. <laughs> and so to our audience, we will see you again, hopefully next episode. Okay. Bye-bye. Don't forget to subscribe. <laughs>